Hey, Donnie here. I wanted to tell you about Champions 90. Champions 90 isn't a workout routine or a fitness routine. This is about you transforming your life mentally, giving yourself an upgrade while you build to business freedom. Champions 90 is about you getting quiet with your thoughts, staying focused on building your business, and getting you to freedom. Come join the challenge at champions90.com. You run into him at Starbucks, and you see him pull up in their nice car, talking on the phone. They sound busy and important and excited. And you see him drive off with everything you hope for, and you're like, man, I guess I want to be that. And then you get up close and personal, and it's nothing that it's cracked up to be. So that was kind of eye-opening for me. But it made me even more depressed because I'd been spending 10 years of my life trying to do that. And so I just started doubling down and tripling down on my drinking. Hey guys, it's Donnie here, and I just want to let you know that we've recently launched a content development company, and this company helps people get social content. You know you need to put out a lot of content nowadays to get engagement out there in all your social platforms, but well, we've come up with a really cool way to help you get videos, blog posts, memes, social posters, and infographics for you know, whatever social site you need. So check us out at successchamps.us and learn more about how you can get social content for your social media. Support for this podcast comes from Point Blank Safety Services and Blue Family Fund. Blue Family Fund, helping dependents of law enforcement families on their journeys. Blue Family Fund is a nonprofit that raises funds and offers financial support through higher education scholarships for dependents of law enforcement officers and by providing financial assistance for families of fallen law enforcement officers. Every dollar donated will go to the families of police officers, either through scholarships to dependents of police officers or as aid to fallen officers' families. Visit us at bluefamilyfund.com. You're listening to Donnie Success Champions, where I believe Everybody is on a journey. Life is all about the stories you can tell and teach later. You're going to hear the stories of people who have overcome hardships, failures, and life to find success along their journey. All right, guys, this is going to be a cool episode. You know me, I love hearing people's things and the things we're getting into. So I'm bringing on Garrett, and we're going to talk a lot about how we became a coach and a hypnotherapist. And we explore hypnotherapy, and you know we talk about his story and journey along the way. But you get to hear me pick hear me pick on him a little bit about you know what it means to actually hypnotize somebody and how it actually works. Fun episode, guys. Talk soon. All right, guys, bringing another fun one today. It's going to be a new buddy of mine, Garrett Wood. He's out there in the old California area, and you know I love giving those people a hard time, but he mm-hmm. seems like a pretty straight shooter, so it should be a good time. Garrett, welcome to the show, my friend. Please tell us your story. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and share with your listeners a little bit about myself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's been fun doing this show and hearing everybody's story. Give us a little bit of background on you. So we know where to poke and prod and make fun of you if we can. 
Oh, I love it. Yeah, let's start with the, the easy stuff to make fun of me. <laughs> I'm a hypnotherapist, massage therapist, and a strength coach. So there's some fodder for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're in. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so do you hypnotize before you massage? No. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so a hypnotherapist, a massage therapist, and a coach. Yes. So, so if you can't hypnotize them, you offer to massage them, and if that doesn't work, you'll coach them out of their problems. Yeah. yeah. Therapy is kind of like coaching. You're just talking to the subconscious mind. And then massage therapy, the way I do it is in lay down with music on, it's lights on, clothes on, and we're looking for performance and pain points and trying to work through that and coach people how to get that for themselves. Nice. So it's a little different than what you imagine, right? There's no Enya playing in the background. Which is <laughs> right. So how in the world did you get into all this? I mean, there's no way in heck in, in third grade, and I had the best third grade teacher in the world. Her name was Miss Smiley, which is just a phenomenal name for a third grade teacher, right? But yeah. if Miss Smiley would have been your teacher and asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up in third grade, there's no way in hell you said, I want to be a hypnotherapist, massage therapist, and a coach. So how the heck did <laughs> all that happened. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great way to phrase that. Grew up with a story about money that was pretty, like money was lacking. And if you had more money, you would have all your problems solved. And that was kind of the belief that my family had and their family had before them. And I grew up with that. And I knew that working hard was what, what you needed to do to break out of that. And so when I went to college, I thought, you know, I'd hang out with the guys that have the money, you know, the Morgan Stanley guys, the Liam Brothers, those kind of guys. And so I was busy getting coffee for everybody, and these guys had the nice R8s and, you know, the nice Audis and the, the station wagons with the, the German station wagons. And I was getting them coffee, and I was bartending at night, and these guys were drinking more than I was at the time. And they were sneaking off and having liaisons with each other at the offices, and they had more issues than I'd ever seen before up close and personal. And it was interesting. I got propositioned inappropriately a few times myself, and I was like, <laughs> this is a wild world. The money isn't solving any of these people's problems. It's making it worse. <laughs> you know, I had a very similar experience when I went after, tried to go after corporate America. You know, I always thought success was, you know, the nice suits, the nice cars, the condos, you know, the ancillaries that come along with it, the drugs, the drinking, the, you know, it was really one of those things that when I got it all, I'm like, oh, this sucks. Right. Right. I think because TV and everything else really paints this picture of that's what success is supposed to be. You don't know any better until you actually get to pull the curtain back behind it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I saved myself a few years sneaking in, you know, kind of behind that curtain. Right. Dr. Oz. Right. The great and powerful. Just kind of looking <laughs> at these guys. You run into him at Starbucks and you see him pull up in their nice car, talking on the phone. They sound busy and important and excited. And you see him drive off with everything you hope for. And you're like, man, I guess I want to be that. And then you get up close and personal and it's nothing that it's cracked up to be. So that was kind of eye-opening for me. But it, it made me even more depressed because I'd been spending my like 10 years of my life trying to, to do that. And so I just started doubling down and tripling down on my drinking. And there probably wasn't a night that went by where I had had so many drinks I couldn't keep track of them at the bar. And I'm cashing out this drawer trying to add up all the, you know, the till for the end of the night. Uh, oh, so you're like, you're a regular bartender at that point. Yeah. That was my <laughs> night gig. Yeah. Exactly. For school and, you know, interning, getting coffee for people. So it was wild, man. But it was pretty rough, too, because then at, at the night at the bar, you're hanging out with people, having fun, watching them spend their money. And, man, it was just bad on both sides. There was no light at the end of the tunnel for that. 
Yeah, you know, I remember my times because I bartended for a couple of years, yeah. and for me it was twofold. I was still in that that crux of what the hell do I want to be when I grow up. So bartending was there. All my buddies were doing it, and at some point along the way, I realized I needed to grow up again. But it was really wild for me to watch how unhappy these people were that were trying to use alcohol as an escapism from a life they couldn't stand and then turn around and regret the next day for the things they did the night before. But to make it better, they just rinse, wash, repeat and do it all over again. You know, as a bartender, we were jumping in and doing that all along with them. Everything along with him. <laughs> Everything, yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. I never felt bad for him because at the time I was one of them, right? Right. So right. I understand, right? But I saw some pretty interesting stuff. It was a college town, so you get everybody that was like freshly twenty-one or trying to pretend to be, and then you would get everybody up forty-five, fifty-five, sixty-five, and it was just a different time of the night that they would come in. But you know, closing. If it's a college town, there's this big cross street there. There's like seven, eight bars on every side of the corners of the street. So at two o'clock, it would just rush like two, three, 400 people just slobbering all over themselves, stumbling, rolling ankles. And they'd all sit out there. And then you'd really see the, our true instincts come out uninhibited by any shame or guilt or embarrassment or (laughs) next day. And it was pretty wild to watch. It was a pretty good learning experience and what human behavior is really all about. Yeah, no kidding. I can't say, I mean, Mardi Gras would be the only thing I could say would be close to that, you know, just let it all loose and hang out. I mean, that's wild. I mean, because when we got done bartending, we all ended up at one buddy's house. And, you know, that was for us, you know, we had drank our entire shifts. You know, that was like getting off at five o'clock in the afternoon, just happened to be four or five o'clock in the morning after you took a couple hours to close the bar down. And, you know, we played poker until the sun came up because there's nothing else to do. All the bars and everything else are closed. So then you drank and played cards until the sun come up. Then you go get a couple hours sleep and you do it all over again. You know, (laughs) that's exactly right. Except you yeah. were doing a courier job in between, so you were like at least trying to be a little bit more responsible than I was. Yeah, I was trying to go to school and do that, so I got a few Fs on my GPA that pulled me down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't even attempt the college thing. Yeah, yeah I did the Marine Corps yeah. route. That was plenty, and you know, so so how long were you bartending? And what was that kind of straw that you finally said, okay, I got to get out of this racket? You know, I did bartending on and off for thirteen years. Holy cow, dude! Wow, that's a long time slinging drinks, brother. It's a long time, yeah. It was fun. I learned a lot. The first half was really fun. And then when I decided to get sober, whatever that meant for me at the time, it stopped being as much fun, but it was still paying the bills and it was still, you know, a good education, right? So I work with clients one-on-one now and talking with them. It's really easy to relate to them because I can understand them because I've seen it, you know, yeah, for a long right. time. You've seen it or you've been there or, you know, a bartender sometimes is a damn counselor coach. And, you know, I don't know about the hypno- hypnosis side of things, but, you know, with enough drinks, you can probably hypnotize anybody or at least make them believe you they are. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that is I think most people are hypnotized when they come into the bar already. You know, they're mesmerized by the labels. Oh, I'm a Johnny Blue or a Johnny Black man. All that branding is hypnosis. So. Damn, I had never thought about that from that perspective. But, you know, you're right, is everybody's got their poison. 
And part of the gig of the bartender is you remember what that person's particular poison is. Or you have a few drinks up your sleeve when you get the particular type of people. You know, you get the little college girl that's trying to impress her friends. You get something fruity and, you know, you whip that together. You get the dude who's trying to be tough guy, impress his friends, and you make a drink that just punches him in the face, you know. And you just have all these in your repertoire all the way there. I never thought about it that. Well, I think it's more than just the the packaging and labeling because when they're walking into that bar, they're looking for a release and escapism. So they're already programming themselves that this is going to get them out of one state of mind and into another. Yep, that's exactly right. They're looking for a way to get out of their own mindset, their own insecurities, and try to figure out a way to release all that and just be themselves for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, because it's funny is you can watch the most introverted person come into a bar, get them a couple of glasses of liquid courage, and now they're the life of the freaking party until they realize that in somewhere along the way that they're not this person, you know, and then they freak out and then they go home early. But – or they go home with somebody else, you know, but <laughs> that's wild. So – 13 years slinging drinks. I mean, I've got some friends that have done that, but do you think you did that more out of necessity or was that because you were still trying to figure yourself out all those years? Because I had a lot of careers out there early on trying to figure myself out. So I'm curious, 13 years slinging drinks, what took you so long? Yeah, so a lot of that was that story about money. Yeah. You, know, you go into the bar, you got four hours, it's a good gig, you know everybody, it's easy. You don't have to think about it, you're on autopilot. And, you know, there's not many jobs where you can just do this and hand it out to someone. Right. And, and they give you a dollar in exchange for that. Like, that's a wild world that we live in, right? Like, there's so little value in that. But tips are great, you know. There, I'd get paychecks that were 15 cents for a two-week paycheck. But I'd be making, you know, my rent and my car payment, my insurance and all that. Uh, and, so. you know, that's the draw. I mean, I, I we still got one check that was one cent. They actually cost them more <laughs> to print the check and mail it to me, right? right? They didn't even hand it to me. They put a stamp on it for one cent. But the fun thing, and there's still times that I miss bartending, is because you were guaranteed to always have cash in your pocket. Right. Absolutely. You, there would never be a day go by that you didn't have cash because if you were getting short, you know, you just called somebody up and you knew somebody wanted a night off, right? You just go pick up their shift and you make a couple hundred bucks that night and life is good. And if you were going to be short on bills, you went and picked up a day shift and a night shift, you know, and you just doubled down on it. So makes sense. There's, makes sense. Yeah, there was definitely a few years there where I was working – day job, night job, weekend job, and I was just, you know, paying off student loans, paying off the car, you know, and there's some of that successful stuff where it's like you're willing to get in and get your hands dirty and do the work and pick up the hours and work hard. But it's funny because now that I'm on the other side of it, I realize that was actually fear telling me to do that. It was fear that if I stepped into the day job 100% that I wouldn't have that cash laying around or that if I kept that day job, for however many years I kept it and didn't start going to business for myself. It's the same kind of actual little mental roadblock of fear there. Right. Well, you, you should have got a life partner. You know, I found my wife, you know, during my bartending journey. And, you know, that was for me, was part of the trigger to said, okay, dude, you got to grow back up again. It's time to, you know, go get a big boy job again and got me out of it. So who knows? You know, you, you know it's funny you say that I did exactly that. So I met a woman, you know, we, 
dated for a few years. We got engaged. We got married. We got divorced. But during the three years that we were married, that was my on and off. That was the off part. So yeah, right, right. I I felt like I would grow up and do the real man thing and leave the bar and just do the day gig. And it was interesting because I w- I went from doing like ninety hours a week down to like fifty or sixty, and I also went from drinking five nights a week to drinking you know one one night a week. And I don't know if it was the change in the drinking, the change in the funds, the the change in myself, but something didn't work that well. And so that relationship did not last. (laughs) I've got a gal who came on my show, Danielle Baldino, and, you know, she talks about her. She was in the Navy and her and her husband were both in the military. And their entire relationship, they were just plastered. You know, they drank so much that when she finally got sober – and got away from the bottle, she was like, she had nothing in common with this guy. I mean, didn't even understood why they hung out, why they did anything. It was constantly hidden under, you know, a couple of, in her case, a couple of wine bottles, you know, and so she always wondered if part of the reason she drank so much was because she knew subconsciously she really didn't care for this guy, you know. It's interesting. It's interesting. So, so you get out of this whole bartending thing where do you go from there yeah so when i was working at getting coffee for the the financial types that depression hit me pretty hard in the drinking so i put on a good 30 40 pounds and i was no longer healthy right so there's a lot of drinking a lot of late night food a lot more boozing and kind of had no direction so my tips went down (laughs) at the bar (laughs) <laughs> and I don't know. Guys, just for the record, sex sells. That's proof. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if it was the extra pounds or my attitude, right? Either way. <laughs> so I started running because I thought, you know, if I got a fit, like I'd be, I'd be getting more. I'd, my tips would go back up. I'd feel better. And so instead of slowing down on the booze, I'd be drinking like a 30 pack of Coors Light a day. I decided to run to run it off. And I was doing 27 miles a day for a few weeks there. <laughs> and I got broken and battered, man. I was torn meniscus, stress fractures on my feet, back pain, knee pain. And I'm a young kid at this time. I was like 22, 22 doing this, right? And at 23, I went to the doctor. They thought I had testicular cancer because I was coming blood. Oh, I, Yeah. It turned out I wasn't. I didn't have testicular cancer. I was just running so much that the shaking of my testicles during the run was enough to actually tear some of the vast deference to where it was actually bleeding internally. Holy shit. <laughs> I have never heard that in my life. And I don't ever want to experience that in my life. It's pretty shocking, right? <laughs> well, for you or your partner, I mean, yeah. Everybody, right? Yeah. Everybody, what is wrong with this picture? Something is not right. And can I catch it? Whatever it is, right? Oh, right. geez. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow pretty eye-opening, pretty shocking. I remember going to the doc and showing him a picture, right? I was like, I, you know, I don't want to explain it to this guy. I'm like, right. what is, this is, this is not the normal color. This is not normal. What is happening? Right. So yeah. now you're a young guy having yeah. to go to the doctor and say, dude, something broke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have picture footage of that brokenness. So yeah. Yeah, he wasn't excited to see that picture. No, I'm sure he wasn't. But, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, dude, you signed up to be a doctor. You knew you were getting yeah. crazy shit. So, yeah, yeah that's on you, job, buddy. Right? <laughs> I'm to you about this. What the, who the, I'm really fucked, right? Yeah. Oh, man. 
Yeah, turns out it wasn't testicular cancer, so that was great. Congrats. But I, yeah, exactly. Uh, that was nice. It was just running too much. So instead of going for another run. I okay, so just for everybody listening, this is why I don't run. For fear, I'm going to crack a nut and bleed. I'm so, so there's my excuse. There you, you know, go. I'm, I'm, I, I, oof. That's a good excuse. It's a good excuse. I'm using it for here on out. Yeah. I love that. Please benefit from that story. (laughs) Somebody. Something good's got to come from it, right? Right. So I I went to a gym and I met a guy and he was like, hey, you don't need to run that much to get in shape. He was like, maybe tone down the drinking a little bit and let's do some weight training. So that was actually the first time in my life I started lifting weights. And at the end of a year of hanging out with him, I started actually becoming a trainer. So that was good. So that was how I got into strength training. So that was kind of cool. Uh, yeah. So I didn't know you went the strength training route. So was it bodybuilding or was it just, you know, helping people get better in shape? Yeah, it's a great question. So it was deadlifts, squats, pull-ups, bench, kind of like powerlifting stuff. Yep, 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 yep. Um, yeah, there's a guy out of Utah named Dan John who's a pretty cool strength coach and kind of following hip, like hip hinge, squat, carry, press. That's okay. kind of kind of the routine. So I was teaching teachers in their 50s how to get their ass below their knees and be able to lift heavy weights with goblets, squats, and kettlebells and shit. So it was pretty fun. It was They were like really empowered by doing that. So during the day, I'm hanging out with these ladies in their 50s, teaching them that they're stronger than their high school sons. And I had a teacher who would actually strength train with the football team. And she'd show the coach a couple of movements and stuff. It was pretty fun. I got pretty deep into it. And seeing her results was pretty inspiring. And then I'd go to the bar at night and I'd pour drinks for these kids and, you know, the teachers that were there for happy hour trying to drown their sorrows away. Right. Because teachers can drink. Trust me. Teachers oh. can flat out throw them back. I mean, they got to deal with so much crap in these kids that, that man, they really, they, they love a good margarita. And I'm not saying every teacher's that way. I know I'm going to catch hell over that. Somebody's going to be like, you just said all teachers are alcoholics. No, I said teachers like to drink. Big difference. Right? It is a big difference. <laughs> and if anybody's got a reason, right? If anybody yeah. has a reason to drink. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. It's Do a lot of responsibility. It, it is. You know, yeah. And not, not one that I want. I've got so much respect for the teachers. There's no way I could be the guy in that in that classroom. I just don't have the patience. You know, yeah. do you think, though, doing the strength training, you know, being that was kind of your first real stunt into coaching people, that that's yeah. what sparked where you're at now? Was that kind of the seed that got planted? Oh, 100%. Yeah. That change that I felt in myself, like for me to be able to walk into a gym and be like, something's broken, literally. And, you know, here's $3,000. I got to figure something else out, right? I didn't know what I was doing. I walked in and bought personal training. And then coming out the other side, having lost the 40 pounds and gotten a lot stronger and being a completely different person, that gave me the confidence to go and like quit drinking. You know, that gave me the confidence to stop bartending or, you know, working that nine to five corporate job where everyone's miserable. And it was a little different to be able to light up people's life and show them some change and build their self-confidence. And I, I saw, I experienced it firsthand. So it was really fun to be able to show other people that that's an option too. Well, and here's what I like about that story is, is I run into a ton of coaches. I mean, I've been, I live in the Dallas Fort Worth area and, you know, I've been told I've never seen this number proven anywhere, but the number's been thrown around. There's something like a hundred thousand coaches in the DFW marketplace. Okay. Wow. There just can't be that many coaches that have had enough life experiences they go through that they can teach somebody else. I jokingly love to say that most coaches, you know, are just unemployable salespeople. 
right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, they had a sales job or they had something they were doing. They just couldn't hack it. And so now they're all sudden a coach. So I love the fact that you were teaching something that you personally went through and now you're passing that forward to someone else to help them with their own transformation, which is a lot what coaching should be. Yeah. That's all it is. Right. So someone, you know, lit the way for me and my candles burning bright. I got to use that to light someone else's, you know? And and that's huge. You know, I believe we all have this kind of internal flame. And, you know, when we feed it by our outside influences, whether it's books, whether it's inspirational music tape, whatever, whatever we feed that flame, the bigger it goes, it starts lighting everybody else's flames. And that's just, you know, proof there. I love that. So how long did you do that? Did that? Let's see. I started that in 04. And I stopped doing that in 2012. Okay. Yeah. So that's eight years. Eight years of that. So yeah. burned out or found a new passion? No, yeah. So because I had my business background when I was in school, I started becoming the boss. So after being a trainer and a strength coach, they put me in charge of other trainers and other strength coaches. And at the end of my career of being a strength coach, I spent like most of my time behind the desk for a good two, three years. And while I was sitting there, I couldn't run, I couldn't squat. And I ended up getting this terrible hip pain. And so for two years, I went to like a, a ton of other doctors. And I was like, hey, man, Friday night, I'm in the 10 out of 10 pain, and it's in my right hip. This is an interesting story. So <laughs> I show up to the ER, and I, I'm like, my right hip hurts. So they're doing x-rays and MRIs, and nothing comes back. And so they do some palpatory assessment there, right, which means on a Friday night at 11 o'clock, I'm in the ER with deep groin pain in my right hip and the treating physician is like, actually has his hand in there. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, he's, you know, the, you got some jacked up doctor stories. <laughs> it's just like, I, I haven't realized so right now that it's almost the same story. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. Yeah. So, I, so I got this guy's office and he looks at me and he gives me this like discerning eye, like, great. There's nothing wrong with you, man. Like your pain, there's people that are shot in the next room. Like you have to complain about this hip pain, like this groin pain, you know, get out of here. Right. And like, like I went to see him to have him touch my testicles. Like that's what I like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. You you know, maybe, maybe you should go see a hypnotist. You might have a problem. (laughs) So the next step of that after like all the, the doctor medical model for two years was just open up the hip and see what they could find. And they'll find something to stick back together. Right. Could have been a labor and tear, testicle torsion. There's a ton of like referred pain that can go in there. They could have diagnosed something, but that seemed pretty scary to me. Right. I'm like 27 ish kid. Like that shouldn't be a problem. 28 at the time. So I went and got on a guy's table. He put his thumb in my pectineus, moved my hip around had me go run around his building and then get a squat rock in the back because he's kind of a meathead, like closeted meathead, even though he's a doctor. And my hip pain felt amazingly better. So at the end of that year, I'd sent all of my clients to him and all of my trainer's clients to him. And that guy came in at 10 o'clock in the morning, left at six. It was cash-based practice. Everybody loved seeing him because as soon as they left him, they felt better. And then everyone's coming to see me at five in the morning, bitching about waking up, not having food. I'm just lecturing people all day. <laughs> I was like, anyway, there's oh, a man. flawed business model somewhere in here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm selling something that people don't want. I'm asking them to do shit they don't want to do. Right. Everybody loves seeing this guy. He's making more money than me. He's having a lot, you know, and everyone loves hanging out with them. So, and they get better results. So I went back to school so I could get a license to touch so I could 
do the same thing he did. And the technique he was using was something called active release technique, which is kind of cool. It's uh, mostly used by chiropractors for their soft tissue work because they're not man- manual therapists or massage therapists, rather. So I went back to school so I could go and teach myself or go learn that stuff and then use that on my clients. So I thought my business would be better, clients would get better results. And at the end of that, that's how I got out of the strength training, like being the boss at the gym, telling other people how to do all that stuff. And I opened my own practice. I worked with a bunch of dancers because my ex-wife, who was my wife at the time, was a dance instructor. So I was helping those people, and they're they're amazing athletes. All right, I got to ask, what kind of dance? Yeah, that's a great question. Sexy jazz. So the stuff that Beyonce does on stage. (laughs) That is the term of dancing, sexy jazz. I'm going to have to go find a YouTube video on sexy jazz and explain to my wife why I'm watching a sexy jazz dance video. (laughs) Yeah. I can still remember the first time I went to a dance studio and there, you know, this was a few years ago. So it was Loosen Up My Buttons Bay by the Pussycat Dolls was the song that these girls were dancing to. And these girls are children. I should say children. They're like eight to 11. And they were dancing like burlesque dancers, right? Because that's right. the style right. 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 that they were learning. And as a straight male, I was just blown away by this, right? And then the music cuts. And then these girls go from being these like vixens dancing to the Pussycat Dolls to being children. Yep. And it was just so wild to me. And two things impressed me with that. Like one, music and costuming can set the tone for anything. And then two, like the woman I was dating was really good <laughs> at her job. <laughs> she can turn these children into dancing a sexy number, right? Well, so. You know, I had a similar experience with my niece when she uh, first got into cheerleading. All the little cheerleaders came over and you know, she was nine, ten years old and all the little cheerleaders came over and they're jamming music in the living room and I'm watching these little girls dancing and like, oh, holy shit, they shouldn't be dancing like that. But they're not my kids, right? So, you know, my brother's there. I mean, there was nothing wrong with the style of dancing. It was appropriate for what they were doing for the cheerleading. But as an uncle who's the cool uncle, you know, I'm like, is that right? Should they be doing that? But same thing, as soon as the music's off and everything else, they're out in the backyard playing and everything else. They're just doing, you know, the particular routine. So that's wild, and I'm still going to go look up a sexy jazz dance routine. And then I'm going to tell my wife she's got to perform that later. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. So, yeah. Wow. What a cool ride so far. So where'd, where'd you go? So now you opened up your own practice. Yep. So you I opened my own practice. So I had a Olympic lifting platform, squat rack, airdyne, massage table, and like a little nook of this dance studio. And so I would see clients there. Then we Olympic lifters would show up with elbow pain, back, neck pain, back pain. And we'd treat it. And then they'd show, they'd show me their movement again. We'd be like, okay, that's great. We treat it again. We give them a little fix, educate them. They do it on their own. And then the other half of the practice was these dancers would come in and they're putting their leg up to their knees by their ear, right? And turning as many times as they possibly can. And then they go back to normal and they're like, my back hurts, my knee hurts. My <laughs> well, obviously yeah. your body is not meant to bend that way. <laughs> yeah. And it's a sport, right? And they got to make it look easy and put a smile on their face while they're doing it. So that's where I kind of cut my teeth in the manual therapy world is working with those professional athletes. And I call them that even though they're 12 because they've been doing it for six years, you know? Right. So, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, you add just uh, one or two more years and they're on their way to the Olympics. So, I mean, they are professional athletes at that point. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And so it's a pretty interesting scenario to be, you know, late twenties, putting your hands on someone who's eight years old, right? And you're working on hips and things. So, you know, I'd always have dad in the room and I would actually call him over or mom and have them do the release work themselves. So that way I'm hands off. I'm just right, right. Is there. And that way when the you know, when these women are at competition, these children are at competition, their parents know how to handle the situation when it comes up, right? So well, that's cool because you, you wouldn't maybe a physical therapist might do that, but you're not going to get a traditional doctor to walk somebody through how to solve something that only their certificate on the wall says they're approved to do. You know, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So I got to understand how in the hell did hypnotis, hypnotism, I can't even say the damn word, come into play in all this. I mean, that's yeah, just so an odd twist to throw on top of all of it. Yeah, and I thought so too, right? <laughs> like you said, <laughs> you know, eight years old, I never was like, I'm going to be a hypnotist. <laughs> right? so, yeah, so I had that studio. My ex and I split up and we worked together. So, you know, within less than 24 hours, I closed the business, moved out, started all over. And I went to go work for another big box gym again and took the skills that I had learned and was trying to teach other people how to do that and grow my business and got put in a position of authority. It was great. And then I found out you're talking about these salespeople, right? And how they're coaches, but they're people that just don't like selling anymore. So they're selling mm-hmm. themselves, which is probably easier. I was working with massage therapists and I don't know if you know many massage therapists, but they tend to be fairly reserved, pretty shy and quiet people. They tend to want to let their hands do the talking for them. I never thought about that, but you're right. You're right. Yeah. So the environment they were working in, they were actually kind of, they weren't independent contractors. They're W2 employees. But the way the the company looked at it is, look, you have millionaires walking in the door that have a vested interest in moving better and feeling better. You have the skills. You're the professional. It's your job to get them on your table for consistent business. And in their mind, they're like, we did our job. There's there's millionaires right there. Just go touch them on the shoulder and let's get this done. Right. But these sharing, caring people felt like sales is a bad word. They felt like it was like how I felt about broccoli when I was eight. Right. <laughs> <laughs> how I feel about broccoli now. So, I mean, I still get it. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in their mind, you know, it's a bad word, right? And it just makes them nauseous in their stomach. So it was trying to figure out how to coach them into being able to build a like a thriving business, doing something they love. Man, that took a lot of, I was back at the drawing board trying to figure this out, starting <laughs> over again, right? Yeah. And we tried to do as much work consciously as we could. And, and I think we did a pretty good job at it. We made some changes. But in the process, I like came into the idea of concepts of like limiting beliefs. Sales is bad. If you have to sell something, you're not good at being a massage therapist. And these were kind of the stories I heard. And I'd heard them before as a trainer, right? Like, oh, I need to get in shape before I get a trainer, or I'm not worth investing money in, or these kind of concepts or these ideas, or I'm not worth showing up for 5 a.m. and eating right and putting care in. And then I, you know, when I was bartending, I saw all those same people dropping the same type of cash, you know, instead of going $100 for a training session, they were going $100 for a bar bill that night, right? Right. right. So... There's, there's another way around it, right? And so it was interesting. So I went and got hypnotized because I had my own limiting beliefs, my own subconscious stuff. And at the end of one 60-minute session, six weeks after that, the team I was responsible for went from 95% to 110% in their revenue targets. And that was just me getting hypnotized. Right. And I was like, all right, holy shit, there's something here, right? If you could just change me and the way I interact with people and I can affect that many people. Well, let's – 
talk about it a little bit because and here's why. So yeah. I believe that there's different skill levels in everything. So Absolutely. my experience with hypnotism could have been that the person I worked with was just not a very advanced skill level. I'm just throwing that on the table. Absolutely. But I had a gentleman reach out to me when I was – I spent, you know, before I opened my own company, I was a national sales trainer. So I traveled the country teaching people how to do sales. And God love you, brother. Teaching people that don't want to sell how to sell is very hard, <laughs> very hard to do. So, so good on you. But this gentleman reached out to me, and he was convinced that he was going to hypnotize me to, in his words, help me conquer the world. I love that. Right? <laughs> so I went to the guy. Now, and I will say, I went in there with an open mind. I had no preconceived notions. I was really, okay, let's see if this will work. Yeah, absolutely. This guy was a mountain of a man, very large guy. He grabs me by the head, slams me into his chest, says something, releases me, and then says you're hypnotized. All right? Okay. And he says, stay, keep your eyes closed, and we're going to go through the process. And then he just starts asking me questions and waiting for me to respond. It was the most bizarre experience. So, one, obviously I was never hypnotized. Two, afterwards, you know, he asked me how it goes, and I'm like, well, nothing happened. He goes, well, you're fixed. I'm like, well, I didn't come in here broken, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And so I left his office, and the funny thing was is I finally had to have a lawyer call him because he was telling people in the the community that we live that he had fixed me and made me the success I am. Through oh, his <laughs> his practice, so I mean, this guy sounds like he was a pretty good salesman. You know what I mean? He's like, hey, let's find someone who's successful, and then let's take credit for that success. Right, right, more, right, right. And then right. the more successful you become, the more his success rises as well, right? Right, right, right. Oh, it's a great plan. Didn't work, but it was a great plan. Yeah. <laughs> so walk me through <laughs> what? <laughs> Jeez. Because my wife showed me a video of. God, what is it? One of the the Howie Mandel, everybody does the performances to America's Got Talent. That's what I'm looking for. And there's an episode on America's Got Talent where this hypnotist actually hypnotizes Howie Mandel. And he, I mean, Howie Mandel is, of course, a germaphobe and doesn't like shaking hands or anything else. And literally Howie is out in the crowd shaking hands, hugging people, and, you know, just doing things he's not do. I mean, to the point that, you know, everybody is freaking out over what this guy was able to do with Howie. So, so I'm on that cuff of there's something really there. Yeah. Right. And I'm on that cuff of there's this magician stagehand BS, you know, out there. So walk me through what hypnotism is, what it does and how it potentially really helps people. And I will try and keep my skepticism stuff at bay. (laughs) <laughs> no, here's the thing is, you know, I love the skepticism. So the more you have, the better, right? Because what that is, is your critical mind where it's trying to assimilate new information to what you already know. And so... And just for the record, the worst words in the human language are, I know. Right. Because as soon as you say those two words, you've just you've stopped all learning process. Continue. 100%. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so you're trying to fit it in is what it is, is, okay, so here's this new evidence, and then here's my experience. Can I make room for this? And then if I do make room for that, what does the world look like now, right? And that's how we learn. And what's funny is the learning process is actually hypnosis. 
It's a hyper learning state. So before you develop your critical mind at like eight to 12, where you feel like you kind of know how things are and you've learned these associations, you like dogs, someone else hates dogs. We have different experiences. When we see the word dog or the word vegetables, we have different physiological reactions to it. And all that is a subconscious shortcut. So we don't have to think about every single time you see a dog. Do I like dogs? Do I not like dogs? Right. And so we can keep moving forward. And the more of these processes and programs we have, the faster we can move through life, the more success we can have, the more failures we can have. All that's good. And that is kind of what hypnosis is, is the idea is to get you into a situation where you're more relaxed. You kind of go from a beta gamma state oscillations in your brain down to theta alpha, which is something you pass into right before you go to sleep. Something that Einstein does when he has his little daydreamy moments and he has these aha eureka moments. And in that state, you're kind of a little bit more susceptible to your environmental things. And because you're so relaxed, if someone was to have you imagine a dog and you're relaxed, it wouldn't trigger those physiological responses. And the more real you can make that in your mind, the more you can kind of create an affinity or at least something neutral for that dog if you had a negative experience in the past. And so then you basically have said, I've learned that dogs are bad. And now I've learned that maybe they're not as bad as I thought they were. Now I'm more open to learning it again. And as so, a child, a dog's huge and scary. And even if it's excited to see you and licking your face, you think it's attacking you, right? So here's my question. When yeah. you learn something, experiencing something, and they've actually proven that you're creating new ruts in your brain. It's where yep. the phrase stuck in a rut comes from because you're, stu- you're stuck in one thought process, right? So. 100%. Are you saying, or am I hearing it wrong, are you saying that through hypnotism you can change that rut? That's exactly right. That's a bold-ass statement. Yeah. (laughs) Because some of those ruts are deep as hell because of the experiences and things that people have been through. So to let's go to something that people can relate to. So if somebody has a fear of cold calling, which is a legitimate fear of cold calling, you yep. tell me if if they could sit through a session with you and cure that fear. Yeah, it's not just with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, all right, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people. I mean, it's not like you're, you know, in a Superman cape here, but right. But if you were, it'd be pretty cool. I'm just saying. But I got the glasses, so I could take. You <laughs> got the whole Clark Kent thing going on, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but through hypnotism, people can actually reprogram themselves. Yeah. So what it is is they can deprogram themselves because they've learned that cold calling is bad for some reason. So the idea is they've learned this and they've decided this. And so now any time that they pick up that phone call or think about picking up that phone call, it triggers that learning pattern. And that's great. That's how we learn, right? The problem is, is if they've decided that they've learned forever and they're done, but their job requires them to do that task, now we have a conflict in the conscious mind. I have this subconscious belief that cold calling is terrible. And I have this conscious desire that I need to pay my motherfucking bills. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, fuck. And then that conflict actually induces anxiety and distress. So sometimes we, you know, you're hiking or running or climbing and it's a you stress. You're at the gym. You're going to do one more rep. Like that's actually a positive stress you can adapt to. You're stronger for it. But when you have distress, when you have this conflict between your subconscious knowing and then the requirements of your conscious desires, and they've now hit up against a wall. That's when you get implode and you need to go drink. You're super right. anxious. You're freaked the fuck out. And right. you're broken. 
So what about somebody who struggled with finances their entire life? You know, they grew up in a household where (laughs) he's over here waving at me, but they grew up in a household where they didn't talk about money. Maybe it was a religious thing. Money was evil. Maybe it was a family thing and just it was impolite to talk about money. Nobody ever taught them anything about money, and now they consistently struggle with it. There's the absolute desire to change. But there's such a deep ass rut of that's their belief system. How are you changing that? Yeah, I love that. That's a great question. So it's proven that if I get in an argument with you and we're arguing, right? And I'm trying to convince you of my idea and you're trying to convince me of your idea. The only convincing that's been done at the end of it is that you further convinced or it, uh, entrenched that belief in yourself. You've made that rut in your brain just a bit deeper. Right. And I've also done the same thing. And now, hopefully, we're still friends and can shake hands and have a beer, right? No big deal. Or we can get emotionally triggered because it's such a deep-rooted belief that we're like, fuck you, I hate that guy. That guy's a jerk, right? Right. But if we're not talking to that conscious part of you and we're talking to the subconscious part of you and you're telling me a story about belief and money and I'm looking for the holes in that story, because there's no real, it's a belief, it's a theory, it's an idea, it's a sentiment, it's a notion. It's not true. Money's not good or bad. It is what you believe it is. Yeah, it's just an object, right? <laughs> yeah. And you make it, if you choose to say it's bad, then you make it bad. You look for the proof that makes it bad. That's confirming your confirmation bias. But if we try to take that down to neutral and we just say, hey, and you're in a hyper suggestible state, you're open to learning. You're in that state where you're able to learn things. We're no longer arguing with that critical mind we're talking to the subconscious that's willing to learn something new and because you're talking to that part of it you're not changing the belief and you're not saying it's dumb or silly you're saying that is one story and if i choose to believe this this is true is that also the only way to make that true or are there other things that could be true because of that and if you do if you're a skilled educator and you can talk in people's belief systems and you can talk to that part that's not the critical filter right, where you're butting up against all their confirmation bias, and they're willing to learn, and they're not in an anxious state where you're triggering all of that natural physiology, that reactive state, you can make some progress. And then if you do that over and over and over and over again, you can absolutely change or reprogram the subconscious mind. It's just learning. It's just learning. Well, I'm going to take that just learning. It's it's learning via a different style, right? Because, Correct. Because people yeah. learn from so many different ways. You know, you get the auditory, visual, visual whatever, visual, kinesthetic, all that stuff. You know, you're just adding another dimension into learning styles. Where I still get hung up is that financial belief within people is yeah. – is it's deep. I mean, for a lot of people, I mean, it's not like I can sit down with anybody and they can read a book in one hour and be magically changed because they read a book or because they went to a seminar and they went to any learning style. How many sessions is somebody going to have to go through with you to break that, that belief break deprogramming your words, that belief. Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. I think there's two answers here. The first answer, and this is the fun one, is one session. And then the second answer is as many as they need. Because here's the thing. If at the end of the first session you don't decide it's worth investing your time in, don't do it. <laughs> right? 
if you don't, if you don't see or feel or like kind of have a shift, it's it's not your answer or it's not your time or maybe that's not the person to work with. But if you feel that change and you feel something different, like there's a little shift and it's subtle, it's not as anxiety inducing when you think, when you vision a dollar bill or $2 or $20 or whatever it may be. If you can consciously say out loud, like, no, I'm worth the $3,000 or 6,000 or 30,000 or 300,000. And you can say that straight face and your heart rate doesn't go up two, three, four, five, twenty 20 beats per minute. You're not breaking out in sweat. You're not like clammy all over. Your butthole doesn't tighten. <laughs> right. Like, right. So is it, is it, it, how much does, does desire play into it? Yeah. You have to be, you know, just like learning. You can't, you can't teach someone that doesn't want to learn and someone who wants to learn, you can't stop them from doing it. Yeah. Right? I mean, I associate it with when I quit smoking 100%. is up until the point when I, and I haven't smoked in 10 some odd years. Um, you know, I never really tried to quit smoking before I quit because I had no desire to quit. I, I there was no reason to. Right. Hence my father having a father-in-law having a massive heart attack that almost killed him. I looked at my wife and said, I'll never smoke a cigarette ever again. And I never did. Right. It was a conscious, true choice. Now that same father-in-law before he passed away, you know, earlier this year, I saw him constantly battling himself to walk away from those cigarettes and I could never get through to him. That it's a hundred percent desire. He has no desire to quit. And his response was, I've been smoking since I was 15 or 14. You know, I've got over 50 years of smoking under my belt. It's not that easy. And I'm like, you know, up until I smoked, I started at, at 14 and, you know, I had almost 20 years of smoking and at my worst four packs a day and was able to just walk away from it because I made a real choice to do it. And he never wanted to make that choice. But I firmly believe had I not had the desire to walk away from those cigarettes, I would have never walked away from them. I think there's a couple parts of that. Thanks for sharing that story because I think this is a phenomenal example of this. You had a conscious desire to want to walk away. Right. And then you had an emotional trigger where a man you clearly love, as you referred to him as your father, not just your father-in-law, right? right? You're like, my father. Oh, wait, I mean my father-in-law for clarification, right? Right. You care about this man as if he's your father. And you saw what he was putting himself through. And part of you identified with that and said, I don't want that anymore. And I would argue that that's part of your subconscious mind and how much you value yourself. And then seeing how much it's hurting you and your wife, seeing him suffer through all this. And so now you have this subconscious belief, desire, emotion that's like, fuck that, not for me. And then you have this conscious, oh, man, I've been smoking and I don't even know why. I've never really wanted to quit, but it's just something I do. It's who I am, but I don't want to be that man. And then that subconscious and that conscious decision work together. And as long as those two are together, anything's easy. Everything is. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So since there's other people like you out there. I just put you in your own category of weirdness. So, you know, you people, (laughs) you know, how do people find somebody that's more geared like you are and not have the same experience that I had when they're looking for a hypnotist? I mean, I think that's a great question. And I would two things. There are a lot of people because there's no this is this is the wild west and I'm out in California so it's extra wild it's like metaphysically <laughs> wild out here right? yeah it's, it's, it's definitely a a whole new world over there brother <laughs> oh man yeah and I get it I I definitely get it it's fun it's fun for me I would argue that there are a lot of people there's not a regulating board it's the wild west and so anybody can 
can call themselves a, a hypnotist. There is a union. It's called the American Hypnosis Association. And there's a president of the union right now. His name's Bruce Bonnet. He's a great guy. He actually went to school with Ted Cruz at Harvard Law. And so he's a pretty, yeah, he's, you know, like, uh, that's a pretty prestigious school. I don't know about how you feel about Ted Cruz, but Obama was also there at the same time in the graduating class. So however you want to go with that one, too. But if you're a member of that union, I would argue that you are probably not someone who got certified in eight hours on the weekend to do stage hypnosis. You're not some guy that got a wild hair up his ass. You're someone that went to school for a year, which is not a long time, right? But it is enough to actually like care about it and show up and do all that fun stuff. I would go and interview him. I would have a conversation with him. I would ask your friends and family about him. I'd ask ex-clients of his if they got something. Just like you're hiring someone for a job, you're hiring this person to take your conscious desire and your unconscious conflict with that desire and get those two to line up. That's a pretty serious gig. I, I would I mean, if you got money to spare, go get a session, see how it feels, leave. If you don't like it, great. But I would do some homework. I'd do some research. I would check out and see if they're a member of the union. If they're a graduate of Hypnosis Motivation Institute over here in California, I would argue that they've had more training than most. And the quality of training is pretty good. They've been around for 50 years. They do something called hypnotherapy, not hypnosis, which I would argue is a better <laughs> uh, I am clearly I'm biased. It sounds better, all right. But it's a real consideration, so I would do some homework. Yeah, I like that, and it's great advice for no matter who you hire, right? Whether it's a coach, whether a hypnotherapist, whether it's a mentor, trainer, whatever, do your right. damn homework. You know, do your homework. Before you get it done. Dude, Garrett, this has been awesome, brother. How do people find you? If they want to get, get exposed to your world and let you inside their heads, <laughs> how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, I love that. It's actually me being exposed to their world, right? It's not about mm -hmm. me at all. That's pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> like you want to hang out with me more, right? So I have a website. It's called Gnosis Therapy. Yeah, it's a silent G, right? So it's G-N-S-O. G-N-O-S-I-S, therapy, right? And that's www.gnosistherapy.com. Or they can shoot me a text if they want. This is the 21st century. I answer my own phone. <laughs> so It's amazing, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, it's wild, right? But, uh, yeah, shoot me a text. It's 714-328-8783. Please, no weirdos, super late at night. <laughs> <laughs> no random video chats. You know, nothing like that, please. <laughs> nothing like that. Yeah, I'm here to help, but. Anyway, and there's a lot of information on my website about, you know, the medical history of hypnosis and how it helps people with different little fears and things that come up that stop them from being successful. You know, if you want to go out and conquer the world. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, you're hypnotized. Boom. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So here's how I like to wrap up every show, brother. And I do stump some people with this, so be forewarned. If you were going to leave my listeners of champions, people that are entrepreneurs, business owners, and people are just going through life, what would be that phrase, mantra, saying, slogan, something that they could use as they're moving through their journey, especially if they're stacked up against it and going through it? What would yeah. be that slogan you would say, remember this? Yeah. All right. Let's see. Let's see if I can do this here. All right. So I think, uh, yeah. I think there's really good news for people that are in that situation. And I think the best part of that news is that they're actually the problem. The problem isn't out there. They're the problem. And then the best part about that is if they're the problem, then they're actually the solution. Mm. That's awesome. 
That's a should get that put on a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Gary, brother, it's been awesome having you on the show, man. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for letting me pick on you a little bit and have a little fun. Thanks for letting us into your story. I think we're going to stay in touch, my friend, and some good things coming up down the road for the both of us. So, Looking forward to it. Thank Absolutely. you for having me. It was really fun. Thanks for listening to Donnie Success Champions podcast. If you'd like to hear more about our current guest today, or if you'd like to hear stories from our other guests on the show, come hang out with us on our website at successchampspodcast.com. I really appreciate you tuning in. If you need to reach out to me for any reason, you can catch me at Donnie at DonnieBovine.com. Kevin and I have a lot of fun each week recording these episodes and sharing our best thoughts and ideas with you all. Man, we're just proud to to have you guys as listeners always tuning in. And we really appreciate the messages. We get the DMs, the emails, and the likes from you guys with questions and ideas for future shows. And that just means the world to us. We really are changing how the world networks. We've poured our heart and soul into Success Champions Networking, and it continues to grow. So if you haven't checked out a chapter and you're looking for a mastermind group of pure, absolute badasses that understand that giving introductions are way more powerful than referrals, go to successchampionnetworking.com and request a visit. And thanks for being you. Thanks for being a champion of your success, because that's what it means to be a success champion.